today is mentioned last week in light of tomorrow being a holiday that honors uh, Dr. Martin Luther King and what has traditionally been a pro-life Sunday in the calendar of the church. We're hitting pause on our membership series that we started uh, last week and we're going to take some time today to uh, consider the the issue of uh, social justice. Um, now it's easy to kind of talk about social justice in the abstract as a, a kind of as a category of itself disconnected from anything else. In fact, you don't have to be a Christian to participate in social justice. Um, there are, are, are many uh, thousands, millions of non-Christians who do incredible humanitarian works that uh, we could learn from and should come alongside them in that. But I, I'm not personally a, a huge fan of the language of social justice um, uh, within the church as the primary way we talk about our engagement with the betterment of the world. Um, and is that because uh, bettering the world is a bad thing or we shouldn't do good things? Obviously not. Uh, but the reason I'm not crazy about the language is because if we speak about it abstracted from the gospel itself, it can distort our view of what Christianity is. And so just to give you an outline of what we're going to be doing today, um, I want to take a few moments um, to talk briefly about how I think we can think maybe unhelpfully about social justice. And then we'll get into the text and I'll have two main points. And then we're going to have a few discussions with two more of our brothers in the congregation afterwards. So that's kind of our trajectory so you can track. So here's the first thing, um, uh, way I think that maybe we can think unhelpfully about social justice. Number one, we can make social justice the gospel itself. We can mistake it for the gospel itself. There are some who think that Jesus' primary message was that of social justice, or what is called the social gospel. That the main reason that Jesus came was to teach us how to be better people and how to take care of each other, kind of along the lines of of Buddha and and, and Muhammad and Socrates, and then there's Jesus. He's kind of the the head of that. Um, That was Jesus' primary mission, and they'll say, if doesn't scripture say in James 2, what good is it, my brothers? If someone says that he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? And in a sense, that is absolutely right. Genuine faith will necessarily result in good works. But the good works themselves are not the gospel. They are fruit of the gospel. Good works alone cannot save anyone And if they are done without any connection to the person and work of Jesus Christ himself and his saving power, they can actually lead to a false sense of of morality or moralism or a false sense of self-righteousness. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 7. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So here are people in front of Jesus who were brimming with good works, the type of which we can't even pro- conceive of in our personal life. I mean, I, I've never cast out a demon or, or uh, I, I've never done mighty, miraculous works in the name of Christ, uh, apart from sharing the gospel and seeing him respond to that, which is an amazing miracle in and of itself. But of the category they're speaking of, this is incredible stuff. 
And Jesus says, if you have never come to me for the forgiveness of your sins, then I don't know you at all. I never knew you. So we have to start with the gospel. Even the language of social justice, though, proves that it is not the gospel itself. Why is that? Well, because in the final analysis, the gospel is not about justice alone, but about grace. This is what we have to offer people. If all we had to offer them was justice in this world, we would have nothing to give them, eternally speaking, which is tragic because we are eternal souls and we need an eternal solution. And so we aren't just justice people. That's minimal. We are grace people. And justice, of course, is the natural fruit of that. The gospel is not primarily about comfort in the earth, but rather is about being at peace with God in the new earth. And for those who think that Jesus' message was primarily that of a social gospel, sooner or later we have to ask the obvious question, why in the world did he die on the cross then? Why in the world did he have to do that? And then why did he raise three days later? This is the crux of the gospel. So we dare not abstract good works and good deeds from the gospel itself, but rather see it as the very thing that propels us. So this is the first way that we can maybe think unhelpfully in the church about it by by, uh, making it the gospel itself. The second way is this. We can compartmentalize social justice as a church activity rather than as a natural rhythm of the entirety of the Christian life. We can kind of put it in a compartment out here and say, okay, well, that's a social justice thing, and, and we check the box, and so we're good to go. Now we can go on and get busy with real life without realizing that the entire Christian life is encompassed with this call to participate in the creation of all things. So if the first mistake is giving too much weight to the concept, this is the pendulum going in the opposite direction. And this is vitally important, friends. We must realize that Christianity is not a set of ethics or a set of morals or even what church is. Rather, it is a worldview that informs every decision we make, and it shapes every inch of our existence. It's the recognition that we are in the midst of a grand drama, a cosmic story of divine redemption, and we've been called to participate, to play a meaningful role in God's plan of redemption. That is unbelievable. And so this is the lifeblood that draws us and pushes us to good works, This is why I chose the text that I did for today, which is Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Let's go back to the first verse, which says, this is Paul writing, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So this brings me to one of two main points for the remainder of our time together, namely, Once you put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, that is, you embrace the gospel, your entire life from that point on is a sacrifice of worship. Your entire life becomes a sacrifice of worship. Paul is appealing to them to present their bodies as a living sacrifice. But on what basis does he make his appeal? What is he saying should be the reason that they find what he's telling them to do uh, convincing or motivating? 
Well, he says it right there. We don't need to guess. By the mercies of God. So what exactly does this mean? I appeal to you based on the mercies of God. What does that mean? Well, once we realize where we're at in the context of Roman, it starts to, Romans, it starts to come to light. Our Romans 7 through 11 is the densest, most theologically rich text in all of Scripture as it comes to salvation in the gospel. In it, Paul uses all of his fancy theological words like glorification and justification and predestination and election. He talks about Israel's rejection of the Messiah and how us unclean Gentiles are grafted into the tree of Christ. And then he talks about how in the final moment, true Israel will be restored. These incredible nuances and insights into the reality of salvation. So Paul just built all of this up so much so he gets himself so worked up that at the end of Romans 11, he erupts like a volcano in in doxology and says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And then it is directly on the heels of this that we come to our verse today. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, in light of the reality of redemption, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. See, Paul here explodes the notion that this is what we do for worship, that we come to worship once a week and then we do life. He says that is totally false. You have no concept of the Christian life if you think this is just what we do. Oh, this is worship to be for, to, to be sure, but our entire lives are one of worship. Every breath you take is fresh fuel for continual worship. And it is from this position, it's with this lens, that we view all of life, including social justice, including our family, including our work, including our neighborhood. It is through this lens. There is no secular, sacred divide for the Christian. All of life is a sacrifice of praise. And this text also shows us that there is an intricate connection between the physical and the spiritual. Notice how he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, because that is spiritual worship. That is incredible. There is no divide between even the physical and the spiritual in the Christian life. It is a holistic worldview. Our bodies are living sacrifices, and this is our spiritual worship. Your spirituality is not just your quiet time. You know that, right? Your spirituality is every decision you make in every day of the week. But why does Paul say it's a sacrifice? Right? If, if, if this is good news, it seems like a logical question would be, well, then why do you call it a sacrifice, Paul? How are we living sacrifices? Well, I think the answer is pretty simple. We have to die to being the Lord of our lives. We have to sacrifice our agenda for Christ's mission, or to say it another way, we bring our mission under Christ's, and in that way we are in submission. This does not mean, of course, that we don't have a vision for our lives or passions or desires. We just bring them under Christ's 
overarching story, and it becomes submission to here, to him. But this is the incredible news, which I saw in a fresh way years ago, which changed my entire world. The incredible news is as the Holy Spirit starts to change the appetites of our hearts, we see that ultimately there is no sacrifice in the Christian life, ultimately. But rather, it is the very doorway into deeper realms of joy than we've ever experienced. We are never told to sacrifice as an end in and of itself. Jesus makes this point in Matthew 16. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. And we should never stop there. This is horribly truncated if we would stop there. He goes on to say, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Self-denial in the Christian life is not the end, but rather is the doorway into life. I have no doubt that you've had experiences and glimpses of that. Maybe it was a time when you felt led by the Spirit to be radically generous towards somebody. That is, you had to deny yourself part of your wealth. Do you now regret that? No, you don't regret that. I've seen this in friends who have um, fostered uh, this year. Um, It's been one of the hardest processes they've ever gone through and one of the most heart-wrenching times. And now that they have the child, they'll say it was totally worth it. We would do it a hundred times again to have this child. This is what it looks like to live a life that is sacrificial. But in the final analysis is no sacrifice. For me, um, there was a seismic shift in my soul regarding all of this. In a trip to Africa, I I went in 2011. Um, It was a time when, it's hard to even put into words, but the, the reality of the lordship of Christ over all things exploded in my mind in a new way. See, I, I want to go do pictures at an orphanage to create some portraits for a book that was being written about these children, and I had, you know, fancy notions that I would be the, you know, the American with all the gifts coming over and blessing them with how amazing I can make everything look, and boy, was I wrong. Uh, I was the one who was saved. I was the one who was ministered. I was the one who needed what they had to offer, namely joy that was not tethered to all these things that my, the marketing machine had told me I, I needed to be happy with. Um, they had joy I couldn't touch, and they had gone through things I can't even fathom. And it was an unbelievable moment in my life where I, I realized to live outwardly focused is so freeing. This is a picture I took while I was there. It's actually four pictures stitched together. It's hard to get a bit of a perspective, but it's this massive storm cell. In the bottom left, you can see that's the entire city of Manzini, okay? So this is this massive storm cell, and it was the most powerful physical experience that I've ever realized. It had this energy, and even the sound of it before it consumed the village where I was was absolutely incredible. It, It was majestic in the deepest sense of that word, and it's a good picture for what was happening in my soul at that time. My life up until that point had been one of the huts in the bottom left, and I was really impressed with how the walls and the ceiling looked in that hut. But it was as if I looked out the door and saw this expansive, majestic power of Christ's kingdom and Christ's call to live for something other than yourself and to actually participate in the glory that is the story of redemption. It's so much bigger than my little hut. 
And so, yeah, I had to sacrifice my hut. But man, it is no sacrifice in the final analysis. This experience freed me from the tyranny of self. Now, that is something I am still in the process of working out every day, and I have so much to go. But even me standing here this morning is the fruit of that experience. It's changed my trajectory uh, away from myself as its primary object. I caught a glimpse of the freedom that life could be found when we're living outwardly. To put it another way, I caught a glimpse of the gospel. I caught, I caught a glimpse of the reality of the gospel. So if you're like me and often you don't feel compelled to live sacrificially, you don't feel compelled to open your home for a community group because it's awkward and you have to clean each week or you don't feel compelled to go to Door of Hope because it's a Saturday night and that is one of the only nights you have free. What you don't need from us or from me is to be guilted, to tell you to try harder to want to do good things. What you need is a glimpse of the gospel. You need a glimpse of the gospel and realize you are called to participate in the redemption of all things. It's an amazing reality that God not only saves rebels, but then he enlists them. How amazing is that? And that is where life is to be found. So yes, we deny ourselves. Yes, we take up our cross. Why? Because you find eternal life when you do that. The gospel is not just the good news of what we've been saved from, but what we've been saved to. Have you ever been moved by that? Do you ever marvel at the reality of the gospel? That is a potent solution to a lethargic soul. Marveling afresh at the gospel is the cure for a lethargic soul. Point two from the text. This sacrificial life is guided by a renewed mind. This sacrificial life now is guided by a renewed mind. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is massive. In a world of relativistic morality, the Christian is guided by the objective standard of God's word. This is what informs every decision we make is the word of God. Now, of course, this is not very popular. Uh, typically, culture would say, of course, whatever you want to do is right, and, and you should follow your hearts. And uh, that, that sounds really nice and helpful. The only problem is, Scripture says, our heart is desperately sick. And so while it can be helpful, of course, uh, if it's unsanctified, man, and I've seen this in my life, it can lead you so astray. And so the Word of God is our anchor, and it informs everything we do, and it informs everything we look at and the decisions we make. This is especially pertinent as it comes to social justice, as we're talking a bit about today, and even more specifically on the ground. In one area that is explosive and divisive in our culture, namely the pro-life versus pro-choice divide. And here's where it gets tricky. Both sides of that would say that they are compelled by social justice. Both sides would say that. On the one hand, you have those who would say it's a matter of social justice for women's rights. On the other hand, you would say, well, no, it's a matter of social justice for the sanctity of life. And so we're stuck because we have hearts leading us, and who's to say somebody's wrong? Well, that's why we live out of a renewed mind that is based on the word of God. 
And so when we look at these challenging issues, we ask ourselves, well, does God have anything to say about that? And we know that God does. He says that before every baby was ever born or ever even conceived, it existed in his mind before it ever existed in the womb. We know that the moment the sperm and egg come together to begin the gestation process, the hands of God Almighty are starting to weave, are starting to knit together. He says this in Jeremiah 1. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. Psalm 139, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And then I love this one, Luke 144. Elizabeth exclaimed, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. It's in light of this, we understand that reducing the conversation to, to the language of trimesters or viable tissue masters is tragic and vulgar. This is the image of God that we're talking about. However, however there, there is a, a big um, temptation that we all face, me included, and that's to be outraged by something and then feel as if you have done something just by being outraged, right? To, to make a post on Facebook and feel like, okay, well, now I'm in a morally superior situation to those who disagree with me, right? Am I the only one? Uh, and that's, that's a huge temptation because there is something in us that wants to be a Pharisee so bad, wants to see, see, I'm outraged at this. I got the right answer. Therefore, those are the bad guys, and now I'm with the good guys. And the reality is, if we're outraged by something and we're not compelled to move, we are the biggest hypocrites imaginable. Because if we really should be outraged, well, then surely we should want to be part of the solution and not just point figures, fingers at the problem. I'm going to transition by reading from an article that I recently read. I was actually, a friend of mine texted it to me a couple weeks ago. He had no idea I was speaking today, and he gave no qualifiers on the text. It was just this link. Um, and it was about the abortion situation and what could happen if the church took it seriously upon themselves to start being proactive and being part of the solution. So I'm going to read part of this, and then we're going to take these concepts out of the, uh, out of the clouds and have a couple discussions with some friends. Professor Anthony Bradley wrote in worldmag.com. When early Christians practiced what the Bible teaches in James 1.27, which reads, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep self, oneself unstained from the world. It resulted in families opening up their homes to people in need. As a result, in the ancient world, children not only were protected, but they also became people. As the historian O.M. Bake points out in his book, When Children Became People, in ancient Greece and Rome, children were valued less than livestock, but Christians permanently changed the equation. Sick and deformed babies were often left outside to die. Christians took them into their homes. Christians, Christian hospitality and advocacy put an end to infanticide. Christians bestowed upon children value and significance because of the way they treated them and, as a result, showed the world that children matter. What would happen in 2016 and beyond if Christians opened their homes to take in the pregnant mothers who were considering abortion? The data makes this plausible. According to Pew Research, there are approximately 62.2 million evangelical Protestants 
and according to recent Centers for Disease and Control and Prevention data, there are about 730,000 abortions annually. The Guttmacher Institute reports that 18% of U.S. women obtaining abortions are teenagers. Women in their 20s account for more than half of the abortions. Evangelicals alone could put the abortion industry out of business by putting down their picket signs and opening up their homes to unmarried pregnant women. Now, I want to be clear. I'm, I'm not against even picketing philosophically. I think there is a time where we need to have our collective voice be made heard. But what would happen if things that outraged us, things that irked us, actually propelled us to action? I'm not saying everybody needs to house a single mom. Maybe they do. I'm not saying that everybody needs to be foster parents, but I'm saying some of us do. I'm saying if your heart's being stirred right now, that's not an accident. Well, now, uh, like I said, um, there's two guys in particular who have really encouraged me in the two areas that we've talked about today, big picture worldview stuff, and then on the ground with, with the foster situation. So David Liu um, is going to come up now. He's a, he's a wonderful brother. And um, his wife, Alice, is actually one of the eight who is expecting, and so she's the uh, adorable gal back there with the cute little belly. Um, and I just love that a whole lot. But David, I've got a cute belly, too. Yeah, you really do. I wasn't done yet. You didn't okay, let me good. finish. That's Thanks. Why, that's why you got to let me finish, because I, I was going to, yeah. Um, David has, with the work he's done and with the work he does now, has really helped me shape a vision of the Christian worldview, um, this idea of a holistic approach to uh, life. So, David, uh, um, you've done some work in Romania um, initially. I think that might be a good place to start. Maybe tell us a bit about sure. Romania and how you got into that. And we'll go from there. Yeah, so a um, long, long time ago, I was <laughs> in college and facing sort of post-college life and thinking about different career choices and what that looks like. Uh, so, so, you know, I want to said, gosh, I'm a Christian, I'm, I'm earnest. Um, well, how does a good Christian make career choices? Well, uh, one principle for me was tithing. You know, everything belongs to God. In this area of my life, I want to give to God the first years of my, my life, my professional career. It's a sacrifice that I'm going to give to God. Um, and the second sort of thing was, uh, you know, where can I do that? What does that look like for a Christian? Well, you know, in, in my mind, like, there's a short menu of things Christians can do. Uh, one of them was missions. So I said, okay, I'm going to go do some research, found a, a Christian organization doing missions with, with uh, children in Romania. Okay. Well, can you tell us um, a bit about what the actual on the ground that that looked like in Romania? Yeah, yeah. Um, it was uh, so the organization was an incarnational ministry among the poor. Incarnational meaning we we lived where we served, um, as opposed to kind of you know expatriates living behind a fence, throwing bread from a truck with a little tag that said you know if you get this bread, please come to our church. It was kind of a no strings attached, meeting uh, very basic human needs in a very destitute situation. Um, the area where we served, there's uh, hundreds of, of individuals, young children, uh, older adults living in abandoned buildings. There's no um, utilities. So in Romania, it's, it gets under negative uh, 20 degrees below zero in the winter. You can think about this. No windows, no electricity, no way to stay warm. There was no plumbing for sewage. Just um, disease was spreading around. Um, kids had upper respiratory problems because they were burning trash to stay warm. Just a very dark place where... Um, uh, it, it was heart wrenching. Yeah, yeah. Heart wrenching. Well, you're no longer in, in full time ministry, right? Right, okay. right. So, uh, help us understand then how you're 
view has shifted on what it means to be a good Christian now that you're not in ministry? Do you find your work any less significant now than you did? How did that, how did that change? Yeah, no, I think the time my, in Romania really helped mature my thinking in this area. Um, you know, this idea that somehow I was helping God, right, with my time, uh, flipped its side, kind of got flipped on its head. It wasn't like God needed me. He doesn't need my money, right? He doesn't need David Liu in Romania. If somehow I wasn't there, it wasn't like God's plan in Romania would stop if I missed my flight, right? It was, I mean, it was really, um, gosh, you know, his work is happening in this places. There's this incredible redemptive work using broken people, and and I got to be a part of it. It really, I think, it, you know, that the whole tithing was backwards I, in my mind. It's not for God. It's really for me. It's really to calibrate my heart. And this idea that sort of worship happens in certain spaces and places, right? Like, if I want to worship, there's, there's Sunday church. And Monday through Friday, it's, it's kind of less holy. Or, um, gosh, if I want to worship, um, it's got to be missions. And if I, if I go to Romania and I'm not a full-time minister, uh, somehow it's, it doesn't count. Um, you know, really, really changed. Yeah. What, what do you do now specifically, and how does that look in your in your work now? Yeah, so now I work in in healthcare, and I think sort of the the shift in my sh- shift in mind happened for me when I thought about you know th- this idea um, uh, of shalom, where it's not it, it kind of opened my eyes to think about my work today um, and and bring that same kind of energy and intensity that I did in missions. Right? It's yeah. it's not somehow less important, but um, you know, it's this idea that, that, that shalom is this kind of yearning and, and striving towards the wholeness and completeness, the way God created our world to be at an individual level, at a corporate level, uh, in structures. Um, it, it doesn't mean that, you know, I work in healthcare now, and um, we encounter human beings kind of in their most vulnerable, their lowest point. Um, you know, God's not absent from that because right. I wear the wrong uniform, right? And I think that just really uh, changed the way I think about work. Huge man. So Jesus isn't just in Romania, but he's he's at Starbucks with your barista. He's downtown, counting, and he doesn't want you to leave that post because it's better to go somewhere. But he wants you to bring Jesus to bring himself to where he's at. Yeah. So that's really helpful. Thank you so much for sure, brother. And now I want to bring up um, our worship leader this morning, uh, Zach, to to share a bit, um, to kind of bring it down even a little more focused for us. So thank you, David. Hey there, brother. Well, it's been such a joy for me to get to know Zach uh, and Bree um, a little bit more. They've uh, been such an encouragement in my heart, even with some of the things we're talking about today, to start being more of the hands and feet of Christ in our world, and specifically with the um, pro-life and abortion discussion. Um, I know that's not abstract for you in your life, and I was hoping maybe you could share with our people a bit of your story of, of why that's the case. Yeah, Yeah. so um, I don't know how many of you know, but I was adopted and I was adopted at birth, um, into an awesome, amazing family that I'm, I'm just incredibly thankful for, um, today and have been my entire life. Um, the reason I was put up for adoption is because my birth mom and, and dad were not ready to be parents when they found out that they were pregnant. Um, I was a complete surprise to them and, um, my birth dad in particular, when he learns that, uh, about the pregnancy, he, um, asked my birth mom to get an abortion, um, because he particularly wasn't, wasn't ready to be a dad. And, um, he gave her the money to do it. Um, 
and she, she accepted it and she made an appointment and on her way to that appointment, um, the car suddenly broke down. Um, so they ended up having to use the money that they intended for the abortion to fix the car. Yeah. (laughs) It's incredible. So, um, pretty soon after that, a friend of my birth moms contacted her, um, about my adoptive parents today who were just looking to take in a child and were eager to, um, to care for me and to be there for me. Um, so this, this part of my story has, has really impacted me, uh, and who I am today continually does. And, um, in, in a couple of ways, it, it really has impacted me. And I think my two biggest realizations, um, is that God has a plan for unborn babies' lives. And um, secondly, that he wants us to see these unborn lives like he sees them, um, which is that these these are humans who are fearfully and wonderfully made in his image. And um, they have a plan and a purpose, just like I have a plan and a purpose, and just like you do. And so, um, yeah, I... I come from a big family, and we're, um, I have seven siblings. Uh, we're all adopted except for one. So my parents, they just have, they just have big hearts uh, for, for taking in um, people. Not anymore. They're burnt out. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's yeah. a punch card filled. Right? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <a free> one. <laughs> but my experience as an adopted child was a really positive one. So I've always been open to this idea of, uh, adopting. And, uh, after they adopted my three younger brothers who were in foster care, um, they, they had experienced an extremely poor, um, foster care situation. And, um, after I learned about the, the context that they were in and what they, some of the things that they experienced, um, and my brother, my younger brother in particular, who has PTSD now because of the neglect that he experienced, um, I've been open, uh, open to this idea of fostering, uh, as well. And, um, I became even more open to fostering when we moved here to LA, uh, and particularly when my wife read me an article about the need for emergency housing here in the city for all of the people who are aging out of the foster system. I guess once you reach the age of 18 to 21, you're just kind of like on your own, um, unless you go to emergency housing, which doesn't last long anyways. Um, so there's a need for more emergency houses, um, for people aging out of the system, but also this need for new foster and or adoptive parents who are willing and eager to take in children and to give them shelter and protection and the resources that they need to, um, to thrive. You know, they need, they these children need access to those resources. And so if we're not willing to provide that, we're denying, um, people, of their ability to thrive. And so um, I, lo- I learned recently, apparently close to 38% of California's children in the foster system um, are in Los Angeles, um, which is, that was just very surprising to me and kind of opened my eyes to the need. Um, so my wife and I actually looked into fostering and we um, took a step toward, toward going to um, the orientation for that um, but it was during the time that we that we found out that we were pregnant, so we were intending. Uh, yeah, I know, right? We were intending to foster, and then um, we found out we were pregnant. But we still ended up going to the orientation just to learn about the process, and it was super helpful. They threw a bunch of information at us, and they answered all of our questions. Um, they even told us it was better for us to wait. Um, 
until we had the baby and established a relationship with her to uh, complete the certification process. And I guess the reason for that is because you really want to be available to the children that you take in and we're just not in that place yet. So we're going to give the certification process some time, but, um, we're going to start it back up when we're ready. Um, yeah, so I guess my encouragement for you today, if this is something that God's put on your heart or you're just considering what this looks like for you, um, is to realize the incredible need for people who are willing to take in children and to um, provide that protection and access to resources that I'm talking about. Just people, healthy families who love Jesus, you know what I mean? Um, I would encourage you, um, even if this is something that you're you're hearing about for the first time to pray about it and to do research and to ask questions and um, evaluate your life and determine how you can respond in a way that magnifies Jesus. Uh, I'm just so thankful that my parents did that because I wouldn't be.